Tonight we're going to get, well, this morning, because you might be listening to it Sunday morning, but we're going to get into Zechariah and Malachi, and our, our, our real two objectives will be to find Christ in them, and they are incredible, and they are picture perfect. I really don't understand how Jews today and then, who are Old Testament, Testament believing humans, cannot see Christ here. It is as obvious and picture perfect as you can get. And then I want to end with a very familiar teaching of building your house on the rock. And when that storm comes, what happens? And we're going to be faced with plenty of storms. Um, and the, the way Malachi ends is the result, a storm hit Israel. And, and truly that storm was not hardship. Hardship came after the storm. The storm that really broke Israel was comfort. It was ease. It was prosperity. It was dominance. And when all that's stripped away, what do you have left? So let's get into Zechariah chapter 1 right away. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. The Lord was very angry with your forefathers. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. And we have, there's a lot of theological debate, a lot of doctrines of sovereignty and election and free will. Um, but this is reality. This is what God says. You return to me and I'll return to you. And then he also says, in so many other places, you are unable to turn to me. Your hearts are far from me. There is no one who seeks after me, not one. Your hearts are desperately wicked. But it's important to remember that both are true. You can't just sit there and do nothing and say, well, God hasn't caused me and moved me to do something, so therefore it must be his will for me to do nothing. He says, Return to me, and I will return to you. And farther down in verse 12, Then the angel of the Lord said, Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah, which you have been angry with these seventy years? So the Lord spoke kind and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. And Zechariah is being led on a, a vision and uh, really a, a tour of what's going on in the spiritual realm. And he's asking God, what about this? What about this? And God, why would you wait? When are you going to be good to us? Be kind to us? And it's so easy as something like the coronavirus is happening, quarantine. Uh, but honestly, the reality is that something like the loss of a lo loved one or someone, you get cancer and you just don't know why. When are you going to return to me, God? You've been angry with me. I know I messed up. And we have a God who has his limits to his punishment as much as he has his limits to long-suffering. And he speaks kind and comforting words to the angel speaking with Zechariah. I'm going uh, old school. I'm actually turning the pages of a Bible. I'm not using a digital one. And in verse 10 of chapter 2, he says, Shout and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for I am coming, and I will live among you, declares the Lord. And that is a constant 
desire of God. From the very beginning, I want to walk with you in the garden. I want to live among you. I will be your God and you will be my people. I'm going to camp out here with you in the desert. I'll let you build a temple for me and my glory will reside there in your midst. And yet people say God is disinterested or he's far away or he doesn't care about me. We have a God who displays his constant yearning and longing and desire to dwell among us. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. The Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be still before the Lord, all mankind, because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. God is saying, I'm getting ready to do something among you. And it's not just for you Israelites, it's for everyone. And in chapter 3, there's a vision, and it's of the high priest at the time. And this is during the time, very close to the end, when Israel is in exile. Some are coming back because King Darius has had a vision from the Lord and allowed them to go back to Jerusalem. And there's a high priest named Joshua which would translate Jesus. It's very interesting. Uh, and there's a lot of double prophecy. We have a God who is able to give a prophecy for the immediate time and then also a prophecy for the messianic line and time and future. And I guess that's why the Jews can believe what they believe because they say, no, it meant only for this time. Only for Zerubbabel. Only for Joshua the priest. And then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of, angel of the Lord and Satan, standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? A good picture of every human ever saved. A burning stick snatched from the fire. Now Joshua was, was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to him and to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. Listen, O high priest, Joshua, and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I am, bringing, I am going to bring my servant, the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua? There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it. And it's important to... Remember the branch, and we have recently gone out of Genesis. The very last prophecy that Jacob, Israel, ever gave in his life was that Judah will attach himself to a branch that is higher than him, and the scepter will never depart from Judah. And so that branch theme, that vine, has always been there. There's a reason Jesus identifies as the branch, as the vine, and we are its branches. And he says... And I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. 
that's not foreshadowing. I don't know what is. Then the angel, of, angel who talked with me returned and wakened me as a man who was wakened from his sleep. He asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top of the seven light, top and seven lights on it with seven channels to the lights. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my lord? He answered, do you not know what these are? No, my lord, I replied. That's why I asked, but he didn't say it. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. What are you, O mighty mountain, before Zerubbabel? You will become level ground. And Zerubbabel is the governor of this time in Jerusalem. And God is giving him good and sweet promises. But there's always this future, future tense behind the prophecies in Zechariah. You will become level ground. Then he brought out the capstone to shouts of, God bless it. God bless it. And as we're coming up to Palm Sunday, what that translates to in the Greek, in the Aramaic is, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he. Blessed is he. The capstone being revealed to Jerusalem and everyone, the crowd shouting, blessed is he. God bless it. And there's a reason the Pharisees are scratching their head and getting annoyed and feeling a little insecure and a little angry that Jesus is allowing them to say this because they know Scripture. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who despises the day of small things? And I think he, he really throws that in there because to the world... Israel's just a tiny little nothing. Rome just called it Judea, just that weird, rebellious little sect of, of small people. Jesus comes, we talked about uh, on Christmas, the day of small things. It was these small things. It's that capstone that holds the whole archway together. Then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on the right hand and left of the lampstand? Again, I asked him, what are these two olive branches beside the two gold pipes that poured out golden oil? He replied, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I said. So he said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. And there is, uh, in Revelation, we have the two servants. A lot of people think they'll be Moses and Elijah, who will be standing at the gates in Jerusalem and condemning what's going on, and then they'll be killed and, and raised to life on the after three days. And I heard an interesting theory, speculation. I won't side with it, but I thought it was very interesting that maybe the two servants, the two witnesses are the, the Gentile church and the Jewish believers. And when they come to fullness, God will be using them to witness to the world. They'll be untouchable for a time. And then after a certain time, God will allow the Antichrist, Satan, and, and the the enemy to affect them. And who knows, but there's just a lot of interest and mystery around these two figures. Um, and it's something worth looking into. It's fascinating. It's a great rabbit trail that we won't go down. Um, but hopefully I start your mind towards it. And in chapter 9, 
and this is a famous one where you probably all remember. Verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And there's not a prophecy more appropriate for Palm Sunday next week. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And remember, we just read that his salvation is coming not by might and not by power, but by his spirit. And the spirit is the comforter. It soothes, it redeems, it calls. Chapter 10, he's really challenging them in their idolatry and their synchronistic beliefs of we believe in the one true God and in case that doesn't work, all these other little gods. And it seems silly that they're bowing down to an idol. We do that every day. Well, I'm going to put my trust and my hope and my joy and my happiness and my comfort in the one true God. But just in case he doesn't make me happy enough, I'm going to do this because I love doing that. That makes me feel good right away. I'm going to eat this. I'm going to watch that. We, we fill ourselves up with these just in case hopes and joys. And he says, the, the idols speak deceit. Diviners see visions that lie. They tell dreams that are false. They give comfort in vain. Therefore, the people wander like sheep oppressed for lack of a shepherd. My anger burns against the shepherds. I will punish the leaders. And like Jesus said, do not mess with my little ones. The shepherds, the priests of that day, they were held responsible. The pastors, the youth pastors, the worship leaders, those who teach Sunday school, who teach uh, children's Sunday school, there's a little extra something on there. And there should be. Because you're, you're representing God's word. It's, it's a deep and wonderful and beautiful thing to do that too often is viewed as something I have to do. But isn't this, this line about idols? They give comfort in vain. And how many times do you just feel anxious and you know you could open your Bible or you know you could pray for one minute, five minutes, ten minutes, and instead you turn to, the, to your phone or to a video game or to a computer or to whatever vain comfort we have and we're done with it after three hours and we feel more miserable or more anxious and then we we, and we need more of it because it soothed it for that but it's vain comfort and now he's talking about that last day about the redemption of all of jerusalem all of israel and in verse 10 of chapter 12 and i will pour out on the house of david and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on... <coughs> I'm not sick, just dry throat. They will look on me, the one they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be great. Like the weeping of Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. That's the last battle. That's where everything's going to happen on the very very last day but on this last day and this could be a triple quadruple prophecy the last day of the romans coming in jerusalem the day that christ was crucified but it, it really sounds like this is the day of the crucifixion 
And we just have to say that because it says, They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one as mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. And then after, it gets better in verse 13. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin and impurity. On that day, I will banish names of idols from the land and they will, will be remembered no more, declares the Lord Almighty. I, I think of the things that we won't get to do in heaven that part of my flesh is like, oh, but that I like doing that. I like watching those ridiculous shows or just going through different YouTube videos and wasting time. There won't be no wasted time in heaven. I'm going to remove those idols. You won't even remember their name because what you have then will be so much better. And if anyone still prophesies, his father and mother to whom he is born will say to him, okay, well, I took it to heaven. This is really talking about this 400 years. Talk about go out of context. The 400 years between the fall, the complete and utter destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, and yes, they get after 70 years, they come back, but they, they're just a shell of what they were. And he's going to remove prophets from the land so that, here we go. And if anyone still prophesies and his father and mother to whom he was born will say to him, you must die because you have told lies in the Lord's name. When he prophesies, his own parents will stab him. And why? Because God right here says, I'm not giving prophecies anymore. I'm not letting you know about the future. I tried that and you made fun of every prophet that I sent to you. You killed him. You mocked him. You cut him in half with a wooden saw. Do not believe another prophet. And so for 400 years, the land was dry and desolate and empty of any spiritual gift, of any authoritative speaker. And so it's no wonder, as we're going through the Easter devotionals, why they were so drawn to John the Baptist, who spoke with authority, who spoke with the presence of God and the Holy Spirit, and they knew they could tell. They were all parched for it. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his prophetic vision. He will not put on a prophet's garment of hair in order to deceive. He will say, I'm not a prophet. I'm a farmer. The land has been my livelihood since my youth. They're going to lie. They're going to say, no, 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 no. I'm not a prophet. I don't know who told you that. I'm a farmer. I've always been a farmer. And then towards the end of that 400 years or right at the end, it says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. And of course, this is quoted in every gospel. When Jesus is struck down, when the shepherd is taken out by the wolves, the sheep scatter. And for every parent, every father, every husband, every mother, every wife, your position given to you by God to bless those in your family, it's a big deal. Don't just pass it off to someone else. You matter. When we check out, we're striking ourselves. Every Christian with someone to teach, with someone to be an example for, to be Christ to, to forgive, is a shepherd to a sheep. And don't take yourself out of your role. And so we're going to move into Malachi. 
And he says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due to me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, How have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, How have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? Remember that they're supposed to be spotless, perfect animals. When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? And this is such a piercing verse for every one of us. Who gets your best? What gets your best? If you're going to work... And you tell your boss, well, I know I'm supposed to work five days a week, 40 hours, but I just didn't have the time. I had a lot of Netflix to do. I had a lot of uh, shopping, Amazon to get to. I've been under quarantine, so I know I was supposed to work at home, but I just didn't get to it. How long would you last? And yet, how many times do we do that with our God? Well, God, I just didn't, I just didn't have time today. I'll get to it tomorrow. And the consequences are far worse. They really are. Your marriage suffers. Your love for God and your love for your own being suffers. Your self-worth suffers. Your ability to find that joy that surpasses understanding suffers. I love this. Try offering them to your governor. Those sacrifices, those worship efforts. Will he accept them? Why would I accept them? It's a good check on the heart. And really, Malachi is the state of Israel. And it lasts until Jesus. It's the same state that, of Israel that Jesus enters into and flips over temple tables. You guys are making this a joke. We're here to worship God. It hits me right in the chest. It hits me right where I need to be hit when I read this verse. Would your governor accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now implore God to be gracious to us. With, su with such offering from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will, not, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nation from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. He does it. And I think, uh, I'm not saying we weren't doing the right things, but it's always a, a, just a good time. We have weeks, maybe a month, where we're not going to be able to meet and worship together just to go on our knees before the Lord and say, Lord, when I meet my brothers and sisters again, I want to be that much more ready to bless them. I want to be giving pure, the purest sacrifices and offerings and worship to you that I ever have. When we meet around the table for the bread and the cup, Lord, help my heart to be prepared. Instead of just dragging on and being bored and just diving into our hobbies to distract ourselves, institute a part of your day that you never have in your whole life. So that God wouldn't say of our church, oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that no one would light useless fires on my altar. And that's one of my greatest fears that I would just be giving God. Ugh. 
It's all right. It's like saying, I want to get married because, I don't know, I want to be miserable most of the time. I'll have a good time here. That's not the life we want. That's not the, the God we want. That, that's, that's not the, the Christ we're promised. And so as we have this time away from each other, do some work. Really, you have no, nothing holding you back from growing spiritually. The only thing that holds us back is ourselves. Especially since we're going to be talking to ourselves most of the time and, and to the people that, that can't leave our house with us, houses with us. In Malachi 2, another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? Is it because the Lord is, or why? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth, because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. And there are so many problems because we don't address those intimate relationships first. We want to deal with it deal with it by ourselves or with someone else and we'll go to everyone else but the one who matters the most and God says that affects your worship and there's so many movements nowadays that are all about just weeping or laughing with joy or being encountering God's spirit and being blown away while ignoring our problems at home God cares about those problems more than he cares about the words you say or the tears you cry or the joy you express to him. He cares about people. And here he says in verse 17 of chapter 2, You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, All who do evil are good in the, in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, Where is the God of justice? See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. So what's happening here is we have a people that is saying, do whatever you want. God loves you. He doesn't care that you sin all the time and that you mess up all the time. There's grace for that. He loves you just as you are. The truth is that God loves you no matter what, but he only forgives you if you ask him. He's not going to, for no reason, with no repentance involved, say, you know what? You keep on sinning, you're, you'll have, I got a place for you at my table in heaven. No, he says, repent, turn from your sins. And that one who, that messenger to prepare the way before the Lord, what did John the Baptist say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When the soldiers asked, what should we do? He said, stop taking bribes. Duh. Just do the obvious thing. Do the right thing. Say you're sorry when you don't. Ask God for forgiveness. It's a simple gospel. It really is. And we, we want to muck it up and make it more complex so that we can sneak in our little sins here and there. But it's just repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And of course, when that king shows up, when Jesus walks into the temple, they can't endure it. He drives them out with a whip. He purifies the temple, flips over tables, turns over cages, sets those doves and those poor lambs free. And then he says, will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. 
But you ask, how do we rob you in tithes and offering? You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. And this is very commonly used in the prosperity gospel. You, you need to tithe, and then the Lord will multiply that by 500, and you'll become rich. You might, because if you're tithing, you're probably saving, you're probably taking care of other people, you're probably working, you're a good steward of what you have. But the overflowing, abundant riches riches and richness that we'll have in our life is going to come from that spiritual joy, from the kingdom of heaven that we're walking in now and that we're going to see when we die. And the last verse here in Malachi, the last verses in chapter 4, it's a really short chapter. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, said the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Mo- Moses, the decrees and laws I gave at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will, stand, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. And so if you really want to get kind of the fullness of this message, I'm sending out those Easter devotionals and we're going through those steps toward Palm Sunday, towards Easter. And we're getting into the just the unique character of John the Baptist. And he is Elijah. The question of who Elijah is, is asked multiple times in the Gospels. But what does God really care about? What does this messenger who's going to be calling out in the wilderness, what is he going to be doing? Turning the hearts of parents to their kids. That's what a great God does. He doesn't wipe out a bunch of Romans. He doesn't set Israel free and let them rule the earth when this Savior comes. He wants the hearts of moms and dads to be turned towards their kids. And that's where you overcome a nation. That's where you really change things, in your own home. That's what God's interested in. And speaking of your own home, we're going to end on um, just the, the song we all know, the wise man built his house upon the rock. And we think of it as just a silly kid's song, but that has happened. Our entire nation has endured a storm. And we look at Israel. They had a storm. They failed. Everything was blown away except what was at its foundation. And it wasn't God. It was themselves. It was their corrupt kings and princes and judges and and rich men and women. So what is your house built on? We're spending a lot of time in our houses. Is it falling apart? Are you frustrated? Are you angry? Are you just desperate to get away from those people? Are you in the word with them? 
Are you laughing? Are you enjoying? Are you working on the yard? Are you getting to know your God better? What is your, now that we're in this storm, what is your foundation? What is your house built on? Upon the rock that will not be moved? And we get this picture of a big H and a little H. Call it house or hope or whatever you want. Those little H's, they won't last. They're going to be blown away. But what is your big H? What's the one thing you hope for the most? You can combine as many other hopes with that. But when the storm hits, they're all gone. They're swept away in the sea. What do you stand on? It reveals just how much you need Jesus when all the trappings are stripped away. And if you have just felt this time like a complete failure and down and out and and I'm just so miserable and anxious and worried, thank God for it. Thank God. Take joy in this trial because you just got your eyes opened up. Just That's exactly what hard times do. That's the only reason, the only way that we can take joy in our suffering is because we get to see how we are not like Jesus. Thank you, God, for exposing me to myself. I get to be more like you. Thank you so much. Let's pray and can't wait to see all of you again some sunny day. I uh, hope you're doing well. Uh, nobody from church has contacted me that anyone is, uh, has caught the, the coronavirus. So just be continually in prayer. Uh, reach out through email and text and phone calls to, to anyone that jumps on your heart. we got plenty of time on our hands to encourage each other and to listen to each other. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for our family of faith. We ask that this would pass and that while we're in this storm to know that this too shall pass, that nothing is above and beyond what, what you can handle. You are the God in the storm. You're the God of the storm. You're sovereign in all these things. Help us to trust you, to have that sense of peace, to start better habits, to return to each other more refined, more sanctified, more like Christ, and to bring that joy. Lord, I just pray for anyone who's listening to this that's just really struggled during this time, whether it's with uh, sin and temptation or doubt and anxiety and fear that you would be with them now to know that that you know each fear each doubt each anxiety jesus you felt them in the garden as you said take this cup if there's any other way lord i'll take that but there wasn't and he said nevertheless not my will but yours be done help them to just feel the presence of your holy spirit right now we thank you so much god we love you in your name amen